Open your Bibles with me to Acts 17 and put a marker at Genesis 16. And once you have those two places marked, go to Ephesians chapter 4. You might be thinking like my Bible teacher, Brother Kaiser, he was preaching one place one time and his mother said, you need to decide what passage you want to preach on. But uh, Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and let's start there with our theme verse, verse 16, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Let's look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we can be fitly joined together and that every part... Every person in our church, every member is fulfilling its role so that the whole machine works. Lord, that's your plan. You've gifted each and every one of us. Every person who is saved, you have gifted with abilities to be used in the church. And Lord, we are to use those abilities to engage the world. So Father, help us today as we look at your word, as we look at what's going on around us. Lord, I pray that you'll give us some scriptural understanding in Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, June 28th, was the 100th anniversary of the killing of the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo. So he went to Sarajevo, he was killed, and what did that start? World War I. World War I. Now, how many of you have noticed that there's a little bit of uh, unrest in the Middle East. How many of you have noticed that? It's a little bit of a mess. Um, what we're dealing with today is basically the result of World War I. That's, that's what we're looking at today. You know, as believers, the Bible tells us that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Is that right? How many of you believe that includes Muslims? It's kind of hard to preach the gospel to Muslims if in your mind you only want to kill them. It's interesting how often our Christian principles, what the way that the Bible commands us to believe and behave, how that is sometimes in conflict with blatant nationalism. Is that right? But they attacked us. So every Muslim in the world attacked us. No. No. Now, it, it was much easier when it was Japan that attacked us. Well, you have an enemy, and you go and fight that enemy, and you defeat the enemy, and you come home. This war that we're in now, how many of you recognize it's different than that? It, what are, how are we as believers supposed to look at this? Look at our theme. The whole body fitly joined together. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to engage Scripture. When we engage Scripture, notice that's the one that's highlighted. When we engage Scripture, then we know how to engage the culture, our friends, our neighbors, our family, and the world. Uh, this morning, I want us to look at this concept of engaging the world. 
We cannot engage the world with the gospel if we don't really understand what's going on in the world. When you look at the Bible, the Bible always gives us a political understanding of what's going on in the culture. And yet, regardless of the political system, our job never changes. Our job doesn't change. So it doesn't matter how things settle out in the Middle East. It doesn't matter. Our job has not changed. What I'd like to do this morning is give us an overview of what has happened in the Middle East that has brought us to this point. And then we're going to look at a a biblical reason and understanding for it and then a biblical uh, attack. What are we supposed to do as Christians? At Grace Baptist Church, how do we engage the world considering the things that are to come? Now, this is one of those messages that some of you are going to love. And some of you are going to be looking for an ice pick to drive into your eye. But this is... This is very important information for us to get. How many of you know the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? There are about three people, four people in the room. Um, Some of these issues become so important. You keep hearing about all of these things. This battle in Iraq that's going on right now, how many of you have heard that it's a battle between the Sunni and the Shia? Right? And it kind of is. But you've kind of got this crazy ISIS group that they want to go into a place and they'll cut off somebody's head and use it for a soccer ball. These are really bad people. These are really, really bad people. Now, let's let's address just briefly um, the, the whole idea of moral equivalence. Now, how many of you recognize that the United States military has sometimes made mistakes? Would you all agree with that? You know, not every war has been just. Not every battle has been waged rightly. But the direction of our military is a little different than ISIS. Would you all agree with that? If we behaved like ISIS, then Iraq would not exist. Afghanistan... How many of you have heard that war is unwinnable in Afghanistan? How many of you have heard that? That's a lie. We have nuclear weapons. We could, we, well, you can't really bomb it back to the Stone Age because that would be like putting it in the future. But it, it, understand that we could defeat Afghanistan. You all recognize that? And that people act as if we're a weak nation because we haven't defeated them. It was really silly to try and build a nation in Afghanistan. It was really, it was just silly. Just silly. Just really, really dumb. But somebody has to pay for the machines and keep the industrial, military industrial complex going, and so we have a war in Afghanistan. Um, we say, Pastor, this sounds like a really politically convoluted diatribe. It's just a statement of where we are in the world right now. How many of you would really have a hard time, you feel like it would be very difficult for you to explain how to solve without killing everybody? Let's remove that. We as Christians, we're not going to kill everybody, okay? So apart from that, how many of you would have a, a difficult time coming up with a solution for the trouble in the Middle East? Would you raise your hand? You'd have a difficult time doing that. Well, our military leaders or our political leaders don't have any better ideas than we do. 
We need to understand that. This is a very difficult situation. So let's look at what has happened in the past. I want you to think about, let's go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was, uh, was married to Sarah. God told him he was going to make of him a great nation. Get up from the land where you are. Going to go into a nation, and a land that you don't know. And in that land, I'm going to make of you a great nation. That was 1900 B.C. 1900 B.C. So God takes the nation of Israel there. The, the great power at that time would have been Egypt. And they end up going down into Egypt. They're in Egypt for 400 years. They come out of Egypt and God takes them into the land and he tells them what land to conquer. All of Canaan land from uh, the sea, from the, from the Nile all the way to the river Euphrates. In the north, all the way up to Turkey. And in the south, all the way down to Saudi Arabia. So you have this huge swath of land that from about 1400 B.C. until today is supposed to belong to Israel. Supposed to belong to God's people. Y'all believe that? All right. So remember what happened. They didn't completely drive out all of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the termites and the, all of the different... They didn't, they didn't finish the job. You all remember that. They didn't finish the job. So they never completely had peace in the land as the way that they were... As, as God wanted them to have if they had been obedient. So then by the time you get to the book of Daniel, Daniel prophesies four major kingdoms that will rule that area. And so you have Babylon. Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, went from about 606 to 538. The next one was the Medo-Persian Empire from 538 to 330. And then you have the, the Greek Empire from 330 until about 30 BC. Now, the Greek Empire ended up, remember, you had uh, uh, Alexander the Great. He was all depressed because there are no more lands to conquer and he dies. He didn't give the, he didn't name a successor. He said, give it to the strong. How many of you think that was a good idea? <laughs> so you end up with, you know, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and this big battle. And so really the kingdom was divided into that Greek kingdom from, from 323 B.C. to 30 B.C. was really in four or five different groups. And yet it was still the Greek empire. Until you have Rome. Rome comes from about 30 B.C. until 476 A.D. All right? And so those are the kingdoms that the book of Daniel describes, and they rule that land. They rule that area. Uh, remember, the Roman Empire went from the Danube in the north all the way to Palestine in the south, and it was a very large area. But in the 300s, there was a division in the Roman Empire. So you had the west was the Roman Empire, and from 330 on, you had the Byzantine Empire in the east. The Byzantine Empire lasted all the way up into the 1400s. And it was conquered by the Ottoman Empire. I'm really going somewhere. We're looking at what's going on in the Middle East. The Ottoman Empire started about 1299, but it took over that area, I think around 1453, somewhere around there. The Ottoman Empire, it went from Turkey in the north all the way to Vienna in Austria. That's how big the Ottoman Empire was at one time. The Ottoman Empire didn't end until 1922. I think that most of us today, when we think of the Ottoman Empire, we think of the Seljuk Turks, you know. And you, you, How many of you think of the, the Seljuk Turks when you think of... of, of anyway, um, 
Suleiman and all all of that. That's what you think of with the, the Ottoman Empire. But it went all the way until 1922. And what happened was the Ottoman Empire, they made the wrong choice. They sided with the Central Powers in World War I. The Central Powers were the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Germany, um, the the Ottoman Turks, and Bulgaria. Okay? Uh, Quadrupole is what they were called. So this this group of four guys, four nations in World War I. And remember, all of it started 100 years ago today. 100 years ago today. It's hard to believe World War I it was 100 years ago. Now, World War II was not really a different war. It was just World War I Part Two. Right? Same battle, many of the same forces, a lot of the same reasons. Uh, the, the treaty at the end of World War I it caused, called for too many reparations on Germany, destroyed their economy, made the people uh, desperate for a leader, and paved the way for Adolf Hitler. All right? we, and we all understand that's what happened. So what does that have to do with this date and our engaging the world? Well, at the end of World War I, all of the Middle East was divided up. And it goes back to an agreement. There are two documents that that were signed or put forward that really have changed the course of history. They were both British agreements. The first was the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was a part of that that British mandate in Palestine, and it allowed Israel to go back into the land and have a Jewish state. That's what the Balfour Declaration did. And we've talked about that before here. The second one is something that many of you might not know of. Those of you who have studied history or that teach history, you'll be familiar with it. It's the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Mark Sykes was a British aristocrat, and he worked with a guy named Francois-Georges Picot from France, along with some delegates from Russia. And they put together on May 7, 1916, this agreement that divided up the Middle East. Now, it was kept secret until 1917. 1917, remember the Russians were involved. What happened in Russia in 1917? The Bolshevik Revolution. And so Lenin wanted to side not with uh, the democratic republics, but he wanted to side with the revolutionaries. Remember, Marxists are only revolutionaries. They're not really concerned with the form of government, just destroying whatever form of government is there. It's revolutionaries. That's why our president always goes with whoever the rebel is, if so, unless it's you know someone going against the IRS. He goes against anyone, any, na- any group that's going against the, the group that's in power in any nation. How many of you have noticed that? Why? That's what Marxists do. Now, some of you get offended when I call our president a Marxist. He would not be offended by that. His mother was a Marxist. His father was a Marxist. His grandparents were Marxists. So it's, it's not a problem. He's happy to be called that except in the media, okay, because he wants the the ignorant masses to stay ignorant of what he's doing. So anyway, 1917, this, this uh, plan came out. Now, what does Al-Qaeda want to accomplish? Other than making the whole world Muslim, their main goal is to stop the Sykes-Picot conspiracy. That's what they would say. So if you look this up, you can find all kinds of websites to tell you about the Sykes-Picot conspiracy. And that was the agreement that divided up the, the Middle East, all right? Now, they really did try. How many of you have heard that when that happened, that they didn't take into account tribal and religious distinctions? How many of you have heard that? 
They really did try to. They gave Lebanon was for Christians. Uh, they, were, they were really uh, uh, Marianists and Druze, but th- for that group, they gave um, the the Bekaa Valley was in between two nations, Iran and uh, and Syria, that area, and that was for the the Shia Muslims. The Sunnis were given Iraq, and so they they tried to do it, but it didn't work. They didn't do it right. The reason for that is they, if you look at a map, they, deci- they divided the Middle East north to south. And kind of the idea is that straight boundaries are the easiest to defend. And so rather than following natural terrain, they just drew a, drove a, drew a line and if you were on this side, you were in Syria. If you're on this side, you were in Iraq. If you're here, you're in Saudi Arabia. And they just divided it all up. Now, the only problem is the religious and cultural and tribal divisions were east to west. And so now in Iraq, what do you have? You have the Kurds in the north. Then you have the Shia in the middle and I think the Sunni in the south. I I think I might have those two reversed. But you see the problem? They divided it this way when they should have divided it this way. All right. Now, I read several articles, one in the British publication, The Economist. I read several articles about the Sykes-Picot Agreement because of the history of World War I, a lot of this, uh, because of the anniversary of the beginning of World War I, a lot of this has come to, to be in the, in the papers. And they act as if, if the divisions had, be done, had been done differently, we would have peace in the Middle East. It's so funny reading these people. It's, it's like these scholars are completely divorced from reality because they don't really believe in anything. They can't imagine that anyone else believes so strongly that if they hadn't... If, 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 it's like this. I'm a scholar. <laughs> and surely, if I had made the boundaries, it would have worked out. That's the thinking. It's hilarious when you read these things. So now, I want you to think about something. Middle East. We had Abraham, but during Abraham, there was Egypt. And then follow along after that, whether it's the Assyrian Empire or the Babylonian Empire or the Medo-Persian or the Greek or the Roman Empire, there was always dogmatic totalitarian rule. Now, how many of you have heard that, um, that the Greeks gave us democracy? How many of you have heard that? Right? Ask Socrates about that. What happened to him? He drank the hemlock. Why? Because he believed in something the government didn't like. So what happened? They killed him. I'm always amazed at how secularists remove the, the liberty. They try to say that the liberty that we have in the United States of America is the same as they would have had in Athens. It's, it's completely ridiculous. It is Now, were there some democratic ideals and things like that that began to be established at that time? Yes. Okay? But you can take all that, way, all the way, that back all the way to 1700 B.C. with the Code of Hammurabi. How many of you believe that we go by the Code of Hammurabi? <laughs> Are there some similarities? Yes, but our form of government is completely unique in the history of the world. 
a, let's, let's get a little stronger on that. Our form of government is completely unique in the history of the world. Amen. Amen. Don't think it goes back to secularists. It came from the scriptures. It came from the scriptures. All right. So now, I want us to think, I started this a minute ago and interrupted myself. Um, Think about the rule that they've had there. Remember we mentioned Egypt. How many of you think Egypt was an easy place to live? No. Egypt, the Assyrians, the Assyrians are the ones who invented crucifixion. All right, Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. How many of you think that it was really great to live as a Christian under the Roman Empire? No. How many of you think it was easy to live as a Muslim under the Roman Empire? No. Now remember, the the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. And the idea of the Pax Romana was that they really did give a certain amount of religious liberty to the nations that were conquered. If you didn't cause them trouble, they pretty much left you alone. Every once in a while, you'd have an emperor that wanted you to to worship him, and if you didn't worship him, then you were persecuted. But in general, if you didn't cause trouble, they left you alone. All right? But if you wanted to believe what you believe and practice it boldly, you were killed. How do you think the Muslims fared there? They didn't. They didn't. So you go from the Roman Empire to the Byzantine Empire to the Ottoman Empire. In the Ottoman Empire, it was ruled by sultans. And those sultans had absolute authority, absolute power, absolute control over trade, absolute control over religion. It was profoundly Muslim. Absolute control over everything in the empire. Think about that until 1922. After the Sykes-Picot Agreement and that division that went on in the Middle East, from then on you have, remember King Hussein, remember that? Not Saddam Hussein, but King Hussein in Jordan, Transjordan and all of that area. He had made an agreement that would have been much better with Lord Kitchener in Ontario, but the Sykes-Picot Agreement overruled that. So by 1920, the Sykes-Picot Agreement was put in place. 1922, end of the war, it's all divided up. And now what do you have? You have strongmen. Whether it's Hafaz Assad in Syria or Saddam Hussein in Iraq or someone mentioned that the Shah in Iran. Of course, they're not Arab. They were Persian. How many of you would have liked to have lived under the Shah? No, no. So think about the way it's always been. The concept of a democratic republic in the Middle East The closest thing that ever came to it was Turkey with Ataturk as its head from the early 1920s on. And what did he do? He made it illegal to wear the fez, the the, the certain Muslim type of hat. Uh, He made it a secular government, and they actually had a very successful government up until this current administration. And this, uh, our president said that the leader that he has the best relationship with, he, with in the world is the president of Turkey. And the new president or prime minister, whatever he's called there of Turkey, is trying to bring back Sharia law in the nation. And so that's the Middle East. That's what we have. And so this idea of bringing a democratic republic to that area, they don't know how to be free, people. They do not know how to be free. Now, this idea of letting people vote, well, what if the majority of the people 
believe that women should not be able to drive. Now, I think we could probably agree with that in America. But (laughs) that women can't be out alone, that if a woman is assaulted, unless there are four witnesses, she should be put to death because she's an adulteress. You understand that's what 80%, 85% of the people in Iran believe. So go ahead and give them liberty. Let them vote. How many of you ladies want to move to Iran then? How many of you ladies would not like to live in Iran? And yet we're told that if when there is an uprising, if our government would just get behind those who are trying to overthrow the government in Iran, well, they could have liberty in Iran. Liberty to do what? It's very interesting. Now, let's try, let's get a, a brief understanding of the Sunni-Shia divide. 80% of the Muslims in the world are Sunni. 80% of the Muslims in the world are Sunni Muslims. And it goes all the way back to 632 AD when Islam was founded. When Muhammad died, the founder of Islam, other than Satan, Satan and Muhammad founded Islam. When Muhammad died, his followers, all right, they wanted this man Abu Bakr. Well, there were, that's who supposedly Muhammad wanted as leader. Others thought that his, his son-in-law and cousin, a man named Ali, should have been the head. Those who wanted to follow Bakar became the Sunni. Those who wanted to follow Ali became the Shia. And it's, it's the, the, Shiite is um, a, it's a word that's put together from the followers of Ali. All right? from, it's an Arabic word for followers of Ali. I don't speak Arabic. That's what the experts say. So you have these two groups, Shia and Sunni. The Sunni believe that they should follow Islam. Follow Islam. Follow the Quran. And that the, the, that's the, where they get their teaching. The Shia believe they should follow their imams and ayatollahs. All right? And so that's why the Shia say, or the, the Sunnis say that the Shia are heretics. And that's the reason for the battle. They all believe the five pillars of Islam, you know, um, Hajj to take a, a pilgrimage and uh, tithe two and a half percent to the poor and to the Salat, I think it's called, to pray every day and uh, Ramadan and uh, they believe in the Quran. So those are the five pillars of Islam. Uh, Shia and Sunni agree on that, but they completely disagree on the way that Islam ought to be practiced. How are we going to solve that? How are we going to solve it? Now, uh, one of the articles said that there's never really been a major war in Islam. Like in, there was a 30 years war in Europe. Remember what the 30 years war was about? It was a, a fight between the Catholics and the Protestants. The end of the 30 years war brought us the, the peace of Westphalia. And that peace of Westphalia, uh, it's so funny. People today believe that that's where religious liberty came from. After the peace of Westphalia, after the Thirty Years' War, there's still Protestants are still killing people who disagree with them, and Catholics are still killing people that disagree with them. The only thing that brought religious liberty was the Constitution of the United States. Uh, these historians, it's like they, they lose their minds. But anyway, so you have this Middle East, this whole mess in the Middle East, 
we, uh, I mentioned that this article said that there was that there's never been a 30 years war, and that's because it's 80 percent against 20 percent. They couldn't fight, so they would retreat. That's the Middle East. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Now remember what has happened. God has promised to make of Abraham a great nation. They get impatient, and Sarah sends Hagar, his, um, her handmaid. Whenever I think of Hagar, I think of Hagar the horrible. I wonder if that's what she looked like. I, I don't know. Um, but look at verse... Uh, we're in, in Genesis chapter 16, and look at verse 10. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, and it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Um, I want you to understand this concept of the wild man. Now remember, we described how has the Muslim world been ruled, whether it's Suleiman or the other uh, Suleiman or the other sultans, uh, whether it's uh, Assyria. It doesn't matter. The nations that have ruled there come into the whether then you'll go through the Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire or the Ottoman Empire or move into modern times with Assad or. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein or any of these people. Who was the man in Egypt? What was his name? Uh, it was just that uh, was just deposed. Yeah, Mubarak. These are the kind of men that have ruled in that area. Now those strong men are gone. Muammar Gaddafi. They're gone. How's it going? How's it going? Now let's be let's be very clear here. There are Americans who believe that it's our responsibility to find a dictator and put him in place there. How is that our role? The other thing that I want you to remember is that 150 years ago, just 150 years ago, there were no people in the Middle East. When Mark Twain went and visited Jerusalem, it was a wasteland. There was nothing there. In the last, I can't remember, it's either 15 or 20 years, their population has doubled to more than 330 million people. Think about this, 60% of them younger than 35. With no jobs, no crops. There's a problem over there, folks. The Bible says he'd be a wild man. I was in uh, Jerusalem, and we were on the uh, we had parked up on the Mount of Olives, and we had walked down, of course, where Jesus Christ would have walked to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we'd gone into the Holy City. Um, then, as we were walking back up, and it's very steep, there were two Arab taxi drivers. They're talking to each other. Next thing you know, they're slapping each other. The next week, I was in Beirut. I was at the Beirut airport. Well, first I was in Jordan. At the Jordan airport, there's a sign that says no smoking. How many of you have seen no smoking signs in airports? 
There are 15 people standing under the, si- under the sign smoking. The exact same thing at the Beirut airport. We get out of Beirut, out of the airport, and we're driving, and I'm looking at the big mosque where, um, where Hamas has its headquarters. It's about from here to where the Nazarene church is. I'm not saying the Nazarene church is Hamas. I'm giving you a distance. <laughs> My uh, nephews, one of them said to, to the other, they said, uh, they said, what's a Nazarene? And the other one said, it's a fruit, duh. But <laughs> hilarious. Um, and so we're driving. Now, this is Beirut, Lebanon. Lebanon is the most Christian of the Muslim nations. They claim about 30% Christian. That was a few years ago. It's probably 10% now because of all of the trouble. Okay, Christians are bailing. They're... They're, they're moving out. But, and by Christians, we don't mean born again. We, need, we mean whether it's Roman Catholic or Morist or, or whatever. So we're in Beirut, and you have a road like this that has two lanes. They're driving six across on it. Stop signs are optional. It's crazy. It is just crazy. You go to, you drive through Israel. And you'll look at a beautiful settlement. And you'll go to the next one. You'll see it from the other side. And there's chaos. What's the difference? One's a Palestinian settlement. Say, Pastor, are you a racist? Not at all. Not at all. But we need to understand people are different. You know, why is it you go to Appalachia and you'll have a beautiful house and right in front of it is a rundown trailer? Right? How many of you have been to Appalachia? You know what I'm talking about. There are people that live in Arkansas in the Ozarks that still don't have running water. They, they, they're still there. There are people that live like that. They're white people. So am I a racist? For Id- No, no, no. There are different people groups that behave in different ways. And what's funny is they wear a uniform. They move to Sydney and they look exactly the same way. It doesn't matter where you are. They look exactly... How many of you know what I'm talking about? They're cultural things that happen, and I don't know, understand why. I'm sure that, that there are anthropologists who could give you a better supposition than I could give you. But we know that in the Arab nations that, Jesus, that, that, that God said to Hagar that he'd be a wild man. Has that changed? Where does the word assassin come from? Muslims who would take hashish and become berserkers and go and kill. That's where the word assassin comes from. This, this is a, it's a history that has gone on for centuries and centuries and centuries and all the way back to our founding uh, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of... What was that talking about? It was Muslim raiders taking our ships and we went over there with our first Marines and said, no more, we're not going to do it anymore. So now, this is what we're dealing with. This is the world not as we wish it to be, but as it is. How many of you recognize that that what I'm saying is true? All right? And remember, man, when you identify these things, people get very uncomfortable. Uh, When Dalton Robertson was pastoring in Florida, they did landscaping in front of their church. And teenagers were running in and out of the landscaping. And Dalt said, hey, don't do that. And someone said, we're trying to keep it nice. And one of them said, oh, that's Yankee. Now, I'm sure that there are some Southerners that would disagree with that. All right? But there in the swamp, there's a certain culture. 
All right? It's, it's very interesting the way that people are. We need to recognize things as they are, not the way that we wish they should be. Now, when you're looking at the Middle East and you have, you remember Iran is Persian. It's a different discussion, but it's Muslim. It's Muslim. In the other areas, you have this Arab issue. How are we going to deal with them? Let's just kill them all. How can we go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature with an attitude of kill them all? How many of you think we should have killed all the American Indians? No. That's why Isaac McCoy, the painting I have in my office, went and established the Indian reservation system so that they would be able to live because they were going to all be killed. They were all going to die. And so he could preach the gospel to them. And while he did it, 11 of his 14 children died. So what are we supposed to do with the Muslim nations? Go to Acts chapter 17. Look at verse 30. In the times of this ignorance, it's talking about different types of idolatry. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all white men everywhere to repent. Is that what it says? See, this division of people by race. Now listen to what I'm saying. This division of people by race. When done by Christians. Is completely unbiblical. See, in the church, there's neither Greek nor Jew. But we're all one. Not Jew or barbarian. We're all one. Is that right? And then what we're supposed to do is take that love that we have one for another and we're to go to all the world and preach the gospel and tell every man that now is the time that all men every for all men everywhere to repent. Is that right? Well, well why did God put them there? Well, look at verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. Why does God have people in Iraq so that they can turn to him? Why does God have people in Iran so that they can turn to him? Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Do you know what happens to a wild man that gets saved? He becomes Edgar, born and raised in Lebanon, pastoring a church through the war. I go and look at the church building, and there's, there's bullet holes in the building. and he, He's preaching, and he has there in, in 
Baghdad in Iraq, pastor who had come to Beirut and I helped train him. He's back with a radio station in the church, hundreds of people. They have armed guards that stand outside the church to protect them from the Islamic terrorists. So let's go ahead and bomb Iraq. Do you know who we're killing? Pastor Maher and your brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to think about these things. We need to think about these things. Now, again, let me be very clear. Nation of Iraq attacks us. Leadership's in Baghdad. We as a nation go in and destroy Baghdad. We'll probably kill Christians. Baghdad shouldn't have attacked us. That's just the reality of the situation. Amen? That's what war is. We as Christians need to be very careful with war cries. You've heard before, we didn't send our missionaries, now we have to send our soldiers. I say we keep sending missionaries. The days of traditional missions, as we've known it for the last 200 years, it's changed. You know, William Carey, the father of modern missions, the Baptist preacher from England who went to India and just did an amazing job in India. There are many places in India where as a white man I could not go and preach. They'd kill me. The Hindus would kill us. And so what do we need to do? Lead a Hindu to the Lord and have him give the gospel. That's what God's plan is. Do you remember when Maniac of Gadara, Jesus Christ comes and he casts the demons? As all the, he said, what's your name? And this demon says, we are legion, for we are many. And Jesus takes the demons out of him. They go into the pigs. Pigs run into the ocean. I think that's so funny because those Jewish guys weren't supposed to have those pigs anyway. And it's just hilarious. <laughs> but then he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Right? Isn't that interesting? So we as believers, if we're in our right mind, we should be clothed. It is summer. Just a little message for you. Um. And so Jesus Christ is getting on his boat, getting in his boat to go back over to Israel. And this man wanted to get in the boat and go with him. And Jesus said, no. You go and tell your people what has happened. Go and tell your people what's happened. Do you know what we're, our job is as Grace Baptist Church? We are to Either we are to go ourselves... Or we are to find people who are training people to preach the gospel in those places. And our job is to pray for them and to help them. How are we going to engage the world? We have to change our mindset from one of hatred to one of love and prayer. Amen. I wonder how many of us have prayed for the people of Iraq. You know, when I was in Israel driving by the Jewish town, driving by the Palestinian town, do you know what those two groups have in common? They both need Jesus. They both need Jesus Christ. It's so important that we get this. And then when that Jewish man or that Palestinian man, when that Jewish lady or Palestinian lady, that Jewish child or Palestinian child, when they get saved, one is not better than the other in the church of Christ. We are one. Amen? Uh, we have to be so careful, number one, to remember that Jesus is not American. Right? Now, 
I understand that's blasphemy to say on the week before the 4th of July. But you know what Jesus did do? He gave us an amazing nation to preach the gospel from. Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Where's that? It comes from the scriptures. It comes from the scriptures. We are all one in Christ. Is one culture as good as another? No. The ontological worth of the individual is not the same thing as the quality of the culture. How many of you want to live in the Ozarks with no running water, no shoes, and no teeth? I'd rather live in Sydney with running water. And shoes. And some of my teeth. Right? That we're... And, and what happens is Christianity brings the multiculturalism. While we believe in the equality of man, we do not believe in the equality of cultures. This is, we've got to know these things to engage the culture, to engage the world. ISIS is going from Syria to Iraq. Uh, the radio tower they're trying to put up in Fallujah that, was just, that just fell to ISIS. There are believers there doing that work and they're dragging them out, cutting off their heads and playing soccer with them. Those who voted, they're cutting off their fingers. Remember they dipped their fingers in ink to show that they voted? These ISIS people are cutting their fingers off. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are there right now. Amen? And if these ISIS people take over in Syria, if these ISIS people take over in Iraq, our brothers and sisters in Christ will be killed. They'll be killed. Listen, Jordan can't take any more refugees. Lebanon can't take any more refugees. Lebanon, what's going on? Hamas is growing and growing and growing. Pretty soon it's going to look just like the other nations. And in Jordan, our president is wanting to take care of and, and support the rebels in Jordan to overthrow the king there. Jordan's the only friend in the area that Israel has left. We must pray. We must pray for these people and send missionaries. And if our military goes, we need to make sure that our military, listen, that our military supports our values as a people. And I think generally they do. But these are things that we need to pray for, that we need to be careful of. And we, just, just, all those ragheads, we just need to kill them all. Just, just turn, that, turn it into glass. Really? Really? How does that fit in with go into all the world and preach the gospel? I've heard preachers say those things from the pulpit. It's shameful. It's shameful. Folks, if we're going to engage the world, we need to know what's going on over there. Let me put one last fact. We know that the Kurds are in the north. And the reason that Iraq wants to keep that Kurdish section is that those, those mountains where the Kurds are, it's a barrier from Turkey to Iraq to keep it separate. We've heard that the Kurds are the good guys. No, they're not. When Christians are fleeing from the south, they go to the north. In the cities, if you don't belong to the Kurdish Democratic Party, well, then you're persecuted. They're not killing you, but out in the suburbs where the media is not there, they're killing and assaulting the women. And if, if a Christian comes in, it, the Kurds aren't any better than any of the other animals that are in that area. 
It's a barbarous area. What is the only thing that can cure a barbarian's heart? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turning them into Americans isn't going to do it. Them actually becoming Christians will. It'll change everything. Last story. When uh, William Grenfell, George Grenfell, went to the Congo. When he got there, he brought a boat. And they had to take this boat apart. And they used porters and carried this huge ship across the Congo so that he could uh, uh, launch it there and preach the gospel. Um, There's a story that he tells of walking into a, a town. And he went into a market And there were men standing on a platform and other men all surrounding it. And these men on the platform, they were black men, Africans, from the Congo. And in in blue, they had marked, they had these marks, so like a line here, a line on a leg. And he asked what was going on. People were bidding on what part of that man they wanted to buy to eat. In the 1800s, George Grenfell, Baptist missionary, he was there for 20 or 30 years. He had preached the gospel in that city, in that area. Completely savage, completely dark, completely godless. He came back several years later on his farewell trip. As his boat came by on the cliffs above, people clothed and in their right minds lined and were singing the hymns of Jesus Christ and waving to the missionary. What changed the savage barbarian, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you something. That person from the Congo that got saved, are they a lower person than us? No. They're a child of God Jesus Christ died for. This is the way that we pray for people. That the gospel of Jesus Christ will penetrate their hearts and change their minds and change their lives. We understand that that's going to be a mess over there until Jesus comes. But do you know what happens when Jesus comes? There are people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. If Grace Baptist Church is going to biblically engage the world, we need to have a biblical understanding of what's going on and what our role is in it. Amen? We need to pray for these people. Dear Heavenly Father,